to the neuroscience. So a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about, we're just going to have a little overview and a reminder in this first session. And the things that we're going to discuss are going to tie in with, some of, with a lot of your subsequent lectures. So hopefully we'll help with your understanding of what's going on in the nervous system, different aspects of degeneration. So there's going to be elements linking with your neurodevelopment, sensory systems, motor systems. So everything links in as we go along. Just want to introduce you to a couple of my friends before we go further. Your essential neuroscience text and your atlas. These are very good friends to have. So they're willing to be your friends too. So please use them for your classes. So the first session is neurons and glia. So these are about the, the two most important types of cells within our nervous system. Specialized to form our three basic functions. To re receive information from our five senses, to be able to integrate that information, and to be able to generate behaviors that can maintain the organism's survival. So we can think about our motor responses. So here are your lecture objectives. Your assigned reading from the essential neuroscience text. And a case to start. Okay, so we have a lot of people going for Schwann cells. We have a few people going for some other choices. Let's see if you change your mind by the end of this session. So let's go through our objectives. So the first objective to identify our two major cell types, and those would be our neurons and our glia. So with the exception of our radioglia, they're generated prior to our other types of glia. And our neurons are our functional units of our nervous system. So our main electrical signaling and communication device, as it were. So we're going to generate our action potentials with our neurons. The glia, there are, there are more glia in terms of number, but they, they're there to help structure and form interconnections within our nervous system. They don't have any action potentials and they don't have any dendrites or processes. Remember, we see our dendrites and processes on our neurons. So we're going to discuss our roles as we go along of those. So our neuronal structural components. So pretty much I expect that you know a lot about cellular structure and components already the membrane, 
the cytoplasm. In terms of our neuron, we, we, we have all of that. We have, our we have our organelles within it, our rough endoplasmic reticulum, our nucleus to make our proteins. But we want to bear in mind that we have, as I said, we have our dendrites for our axons, our, ne our neurons. And then we have an extension, which is our axon containing our axioplasm and the outer, the outer covering is the axolemma. So, depending on the function of the neuron, it can be a different shape, and the most common is our multi, multi, having our multiple dendrites and our single neuron, as we can see here. So our multiple dendrites are our receptive processes. They increase our surface area, so we're allowing us to now synapse with other, well, making more synapses, essentially, having all these dendrites. And our axon, so we mentioned our action potential, that has to traverse the axon and make connection with the subsequent neuron. So I already said, and you already know, the nucleus, that's where we're going to make our RNA, make our proteins our nissel substance, so named because of the stain that can bind to the granules there. So we've made our proteins. It's kind of like a, a packaging area or a, a warehouse. Yeah, we're making a product and then we're gonna modify it. So we go from our rough endoplasmic reticulum to our Golgi apparatus, modify our proteins. We need energy for that, so we need our mitochondria. We package it up in vesicles and then we transport it along down to the axon terminal. Our lysosomes, our specialized scavenger cells, they're there to help with, well, breaking down substances when we need, when we need to. So they scavenge our vesicles and we'll touch upon those as well. So our cytoskeleton and our active transport. So we have our microtubules, and these are, are responsible for our, well, they help with our active transport. We have our dynein and kinesin. So these are our motor components our, of our uh, microtubules. So they help with our active transport. So our microtubules are cross-linked with our tau protein, so that helps to give stabilization. So if we think of our microtubules such as like our train tracks, and we need, as we said, we need to transport our proteins up and down the axon, and our kinesin and our dynein travel along those tracks to help deliver our protein, in, in this case, uh, talking about neuroscience, we're thinking about neurotransmitter being transported to the axon terminal. And sometimes when we need to, if we re-internalize our transmitter, it needs, to be, it needs to get back to the soma. So it, the dynein can help with that retrograde transport. So we have our anterior grade and retrograde transport, and our kinesin and our dynein are essential for that process. When we think about tau protein, can you think of any neurodegenerative disorder where tau protein is mentioned or gets damaged or Alzheimer's, exactly. So there we can now think or we can hopefully link that because we, we have issues with our tau protein, we, can, we were going to affect our, transport, our active transports within our axon. So we dysregulate our transport so we're no longer able to deliver our proteins, deliver our nutrients that we need to. Our microtubules give us mechanical strength as well. So it's our mechanical strength, our fast axonal transport, we have our tracks, and as I said, our two unique characteristics, having our kinesin and our dynein that can travel up and down our tracks. Our microfilaments. So they also form 
a kind of network, but they're, they're prominent throughout the membrane. You find them near the plasma membrane mostly, and they anchor our membrane proteins. Our neurofilaments give us mechanical strength again, but they, they strengthen and they kind of extend. They, they're involved in the axonal diameter. And the, in terms of the axonal diameter, they affect the axonal diameter because of the side groups that they form. So they have uh, phosphate groups, and depending on the spacing of those side arms, you can have changes in the diameter. So the, the neurofilaments will mostly be found in the axon portion. Microfilaments give structural support, growth and guidance of the axon during development. So in the developmental stages, our microfilaments are very important. So as we have here re with regards to the movement of the growth cone. So just in summary, as I mentioned, the anterior grade transport is kinesin-driven, retrograde is dynein-driven, and I would like you to note from this table, we see we have vesicular transport and non-vesicular transport with regards to the materials transported, and that, so we can see anterior grade transport, we can link that with vesicular transport, Retrograde transport is more non-vesicular transport. So our morphotypes now. So I said that earlier that, that we have our different, well, we, our neurons can be different shapes. And you've already seen these guys before, I anticipate. So you should be familiar with the different morphotypes. Pay attention to them now. That you know, so you should know that the pseudo-unipolar, remember, they're responsible for transmitting our primary sensory information. So, and we, can, we have our cell bodies, commonly in the peripheral ganglia. So we see our central nucleus in the middle, and we have extensions going to the CNS terminals and the peripheral terminals. So the cell body in the center here will form our peripheral ganglia, such as our spinal dorsal root ganglia, cranial nerve ganglia. Our bipolar neurons, they can be found centrally or peripherally. Their job is to transmit special sensory information. So when you get to your sensory lectures, you're going to be talking a lot about bipolar neurons, especially when you get to the eye and, well, all your special senses. Again, we have the nucleus in the center and our extension with our dendrites at one end and the presynaptic terminals going to the CNS. Our multipolar neurons, as I said, our most uh, well popular neuron or the one that we're going to talk a lot about and see more regularly. We have subtypes, our Golgi types 1 and 2. So we have our long axons, which will be, we will anticipate are our Golgi type 1, our motor neurons. So when we have motor de degeneration or when you get onto the motor, motor components or motor lectures, you want to think about Golgi type 1s. Our short axons, our Golgi type 2s, are our interneurons. So our local connections between our neurons. So our multipolar Interneurons are Golgi type 1 and 2s. You find them in the CNS. Type 2s are in the peripheral nervous system. And again, just a summary here. So our multipolar Golgi type 1, the efferent, so the nucleus is in the CNS connecting to the peripheral nervous system. Pseudo-unipolar, we have our ganglion being in the peripheral nervous system of our afferent neuron there. So we have our, again, central nervous system and peripheral nervous system connection, and our multipolar Golgi type 1 or 2s being our interneuron, our interneuronal connections. Now let's try to correlate the conduction velocity with our axonal myelination and diameter and differentiate the excitatory and inhibitory neurons.
some myelination and the axonal diameter. So let's first touch upon the diameter. So speed of propagation, we know that is, it's proportional to the square root of the radius. So therefore, if we increase our diameter, then we're going to have faster propagation. So by default, in our image here, A and B, A has a smaller diameter, so our impulses propagate more slowly along this unmyelinated axon. Whereas in image B, we have a larger diameter. Image B is also myelinated, and we're going to discuss that in a second, but in terms of diameter, it's larger, large, it has a larger diameter, so we expect our propagation to be faster for that reason alone. Moving on to our myelination, myelination helps in terms of propagation, again, because now we want to think about something called the time constant. So there are two, two constants we're going to discuss, the time constant and the length constant. And we're going to discuss the length constant in our next session, but with regards to the time constant, this relates to the speed of our response. It depends, so dependent on the, it's dependent on our membrane resistance, which is dictated by how many channels are open. So you can imagine if there's open channels, there's flow of ions, and that will decrease our resistance. But this is something variable, because you know that we can open and close channels give it, if we give the appropriate signal. Capacitance is something else that our time constant depends on. This is our ability to store change, store, uh, store charge, sorry. This is, non, this is a non-variable property because it's linked to the lipid membrane. So if we think of, like if you have a sponge and you absorb, you have to absorb water in the sponge, our capacitance in this case, we're thinking about, well, how much water do we need to absorb before we can squeeze the water out. So our myelin actually decreases our capacitance. So it means that you don't have to store up a lot of charge before you can then allow it to travel along the neuron. So it, you can have less charge, less storage buildup before it can travel along the axon. Myelin will increase the resistance. So we've wrapped our myelin around our axon, so there is less ion flux across the transmembrane surface. So we've increased our resistance, we've decreased our capacitance. This now decreases our time constant. So now our time constant is decreased, which means we have faster propagation, faster speed of propagation of our signal along our axon. Also, the myelin will help to recruit ion channels, and we're going to later discuss that in our further session. And there's also metabolic savings for having myelin as well. Our excitatory versus our inhibitory neurons. So we always say, for example, a glutamate is excitatory, GABA is inhibitory, for example. These terms are commonly used. You're going to find them in all your literature. But they can be misleading because it's not actually the neurotransmitter that dictates whether the response is inhibitory or excitatory. It's actually the channel on the soma. So let's have a look at our two, or at our image here. We have the neuron here with its two processes, and it is connecting with two different postsynaptic neurons. However, if we insert our electrode into the neuron on the top of the screen, we see we have an inhibitory response, an IPSP, 
this is our inhibitory postsynaptic potential. But we have release of the same neurotransmitters onto our postsynaptic neuron in the bottom portion of the screen. However, we now have an excitatory response, an excitatory postsynaptic potential. So the same neurotransmitter is released from this neuron. However, we have different responses in our different postsynaptic neurons. And that's because of the channels that will be present in the soma. Again, you will come across, for example, glutamate in your sensory, sensory lectures having inhibitory as well as excitatory abilities. Now let's go on to talk about our different types of glial cells and their functions in our central and peripheral nervous system. So our central glia, our astrocytes, our microglia, oligodendrocytes, ependymal cells, etc. And this cartoon is just to give you an idea that, you know, when we're not thinking of these cells individually, they're all working together. Our pindemal cells at the level of the ventricle, astrocytes making connection with the blood capillary, as well as our neurons, oligodendrocytes with the neuron, our little microglia here coming in and cleaning up debris as required. So our radioglia. So you're going to discuss this, uh, these a bit more in your developmental lectures. But essentially, they do an intricate dance along the scaffolding in the image here. So we have a scaffold for neuronal migration. They travel up and down the scaffolding, which spans the ventricular and peel surface before deciding on a, on a final location when everything has developed appropriately in early life. Our radioglia are now, there are two types of, well, there's a couple of types of radioglia that are persistent in our adult life. So the Mueller cells, you'll find them in the retina and our Bergman glia in the cerebellum. So they're just, they're remnants or radioglia that, have, that are left back after development or after the developmental stages. Our astrocytes. So these are our largest amongst our glia. They're fibrous and prominent in our white matter and they have high GFAP. So this is a special stain that you can use, gliofibrillary acidic protein. They're protoplasmic in the gray matter. So there's, in the gray matter, you find that there's low GFAP, but in the white matter, you'll find high levels of GFAP. They both cover our small, small diameter axons that do not have oligodendrocytes on them. They can help direct blood flow, so they can help kind of massage our blood flow to areas of high metabolic demand or when there's localized changes. They're able to supply lactate, so they're able to supply additional energy at times of, well, deficit. So if there's, a in, if there's injury, they can provide emergency rations. So not only of our ATP, well, of our ATP when we're oxygen deprived, but they can also now divide and fill spaces when there's injury as well. So when we have our dead neurons, they come in, they fill spaces, they try to give some trophic support. However, it can be insufficient if there's a, sig if there's a significant brain injury. So it's not going to help with regeneration of any kind of cell or any, um, not, not regeneration per se, because we know in the central nervous system, 
we don't really have the capacity to regenerate. But what we can do is we can try and limit or, well, limit our loss of neuronal connections. So that's where the astrocytes come in to come and try and fill those gaps. They influence our brain endothelia. You know about the formation of the blood-brain barrier, so forming our special contacts there with, our, with their glial end feet, facilitate transport of blood-borne nutrients, so to make sure that nutrients can get into the brain and can get into our neurons. So essentially maintaining that ionic homeostasis So in terms of maintaining our ionic homeostasis, actually we're going to buffer our cations. So we know again calcium, hopefully that you're familiar with knowing that calcium and potassium are ions that are neurotoxic. So they're toxic to our cells and they excite them. So we don't, you don't need to have extra excitation of our neurons when you don't want it, and we don't want to kill off our neurons, especially in the central nervous system. So our astrocytes serve to buffer our calcium currents by way of their gap junctions. So they have gap junction connections between them, and they can dissipate the calcium amongst themselves. So this is what they call forming calcium waves. For potassium buffering, if we look at the image in the bottom here, we can see that we've had an action potential, and this has caused our sodium channels and our potassium channels to open. So we have our sodium flowing in, potassium flowing out. So all the excess potassium, our astrocyte next door now has a sodium-potassium pump, so it's able to take up the potassium load as well as it has a sodium-potassium chloride transporter, again allowing it to remove potassium from the microenvironment. In further discussions, we'll also discuss how our, our, our glia can actually remove excess neurotransmitter from the microenvironment also. So we're sending our action potential along our neuron with the purpose of releasing that neurotransmitter onto our postsynaptic neuron. So we're going from our presynaptic neuron to our postsynaptic neuron, and we don't want our neurotransmitter to be activating any other neurons other than those. With regards to our microglia now, they have our immunocomponent. So we mentioned that there's the blood-brain barrier, so our brain is, if you say, immunodiscrete. We, we don't have the facility to be able to regenerate our cells or our neurons in the central nervous system, so we don't want antibodies coming in, or we don't, we don't want invaders coming in and destroying all the cells there. So that's why we have our blood-brain barrier, and we have our, if you want to say, our home our homeland security, our own police within our brain, our microglia cells, and they come in and they will, they're our immunocompetent cells and they have a phagocytic uh, role. So they get rid of invaders. Inevitably though, in disease, the native cells can get damaged in the crossfire. So you have damage of your own neurons leading to our neurodegenerative processes. They do try to apply some kind of first aid by releasing neurotrophic factors. And only, so only these kind of phagocytic cells are present in our central nervous system. So if you see any macrophages or neutrophils, then this is, you know, that something's happened. So you'll see those after injury or you'll see the presence of inflammation. So that's a red flag to know that something has happened. Our oligodendrocytes, so they have multiple arms 
They can wrap around our axons and their purpose is to myelinate them. So these are our central nervous system myelinating cells. Large diameter neurons and they can make multiple segments. Our ependymal cells lining, lining our ventricles, so allowing us to make our CSF. Our CSF is important because it has buffering capacity. We're going to be exchanging nutrients again. And the CSF, as we know, is it's a, we have absorptive microvilli, so we're going to facilitate our CSF flow with our cilia as well that are on the top here of our ependymal cell. Other types of central glia, choroid plexus, epithelial cells. So as the name indicates, they're in the choroid plexus. Again, we're producing, we're producing and secreting our CSF. We have, so we're facilitating the blood to CSF transfer of our nutrients. Tannocytes forming that CSF blood, CSF blood transfer and forming our kind of barrier there, so our functional interface between our blood and our CSF, especially present near our circumventricular organs. Now on to the peripheral nervous system, and this is where we have our Schwann cells, and here again, a myelination role, but the Schwann cells, only one Schwann cell would myelinate one axon, so you don't have multi-arms with the, with the Schwann cells. If there's neuronal damage, they can release, so leftover Schwann cell in neuronal damage will act as a beacon. So it will, it will act as an, a, a guidance system for axonal regrowth. So here's one of the reasons why in the peripheral nervous system, you're able to have some axonal regeneration. And our other glia, enteric glia in the enteric system, satellite glia found in the peripheral and ganglia. So let's now try and list our cellular re reactions to axonal transection. And let's have a little correlation with regards to clinical conditions. So we're going to think about axotomy. So when we have our neuron, we're going to think about our, if you have neurons of the same function. So in this image, we have essentially three neurons. So they're all going to have the same function in this image. Now with Wallerian degeneration, this is now where there's been a transection close to the soma. So we have changes distally to the soma. So of course, if we've transected at our site of damage labeled in the image here, you're not able to transmit any proteins. You can't get any nutrients up to the soma. There's, and then there's debris formed. Phagocytes, phagocytosis takes place, and then essentially there would be neuronal death. There's a de demyelination process as well, so that's why there's myelin debris, and then chromatolysis will take place. So earlier, when we spoke about our neuron and we spoke about our nissel bodies, I hope that you noticed, or if you recall from previous lectures, that the nissel bodies do not pass the axon hillock or that initiation segment. However, when there's chromatolysis, we can see that they're freely flowing throughout the soma. So chromatolysis, and when we have our proximal changes, in injury close to the cell body, 
We can now have edema. As I said, nissel is throughout the, the cytoplasm. We see a shift in the nucleus. So I've said that with our Wallerian degeneration, this neuron in the center here is essentially going to die. But in the peripheral nervous system, we have some plasticity, which allows axons to grow back. So actually, our Wallerian de degeneration is important because myelin proteins inhibit the ability to have this plasticity. So if we don't remove our degenerated portion and remove all our myelin debris, you actually won't have the ability to reform that axonal contact. So the Wallerian degeneration is important, and then the process of remyelination can take place. But if, if that's not possible, as I say, if this neuron completely dies. Now, if we look to our retrograde neuron and our anterior grade neuron, they no longer have anybody to communicate to or anybody sending them any communication signal. Remember, all of them are working together for the same aim. So in retrograde transneural degeneration, because this neuron doesn't have our central neuron to speak to again, it decides, well, it doesn't have any purpose anymore, so it dies. Equally, the anterior grade neuron, so the neuron that has, uh, has undergone Wallerian degeneration in our image here, is not sending a signal to the anterior grade neuron anymore. So, it doesn't bother to stay alive either because it has no purpose. And to this end, now hopefully that you'll be able to see how we can have a whole degeneration of a large population of neurons in disease. So if we don't get a handle of things, you can have complete wipeout of cell population, neuronal cell populations. And again, everything listed here. So back to our case, paralysis from the bottom up. Right. 
So we've increased our vote for the Schwann cells. So what kind of uh, disease do you think, do, any, any idea what might be going on here with this patient? Louder? Guillain-Barre, okay, what's, so, what's giving you, what, what are the clues here? So we have a previous infection and then now followed by weakness which is progressively becoming worse. We have sensory deficits as well. And then by the morning, well, needing vent ventilatory support. So, and especially it's a peripheral demyelinating condition. So yes, our Schwann cells are affected because of that demyelination component, Guillain-Barre. As, as was said by one of your, or most of your colleagues, 89%, I think, of the class went for that. What kind of treatment do we give such patients? So you could have the possibility of plasma exchange, but there's some side effects with that. So these days you have immunoglobulin, at, um, which is easy to administer, and there are less side effects in terms of treatment. And if caught early and given the appropriate treatment, there can be full recovery. Otherwise, death will rapidly ensue. All right, so 74% have gone for slowed propagation, and that would be absolutely correct. Gliotic scarring is not appropriate because we're specifically asking in this patient with our Guillain-Barre, we said it was a demyelinated disorder. So what were the consequences specifically of the demyelination? It's not gliotic scarring. What's, what cells do we have coming in to help to form our gliotic scar. Remember, our astrocytes rush in and try and make those connections. Enhanced calcium waves. Well, our calcium waves, again, astrocytes, if there was too much calcium, so that's in situations where you have increased excitation is when you would have increased calcium, and that's when the astrocytes will have enhanced calcium waves. So between choices A and C, I do agree that C is the better choice because 
When we thought of our Valerian degeneration, yes, demyelination took place, but we said the consequences of the demyelination. So in Valerian, Valerian degeneration, there is de demyelination, but the consequence of demyelination is to slow our propagation of our impulses. So if you think back to the slides where we discussed our importance of having, well, the effect of the diameter and myelination on the axon, we discussed that myelination increased our speed of our propagation of our impulse. So just a reminder there, and we'll see this image again in a future lecture. Yes, there's another one. It's not, okay, it's open now. Okay, so polling is closed. It's just a bit of a delay in showing your responses. So yes, they are our multipolar Golgi type 1s. Remember our type 2s were our interneurons. We had our bipolar neurons being our special sensories. And our unipolars, you don't see them commonly in vertebrates. And now our final question. Okay, I'm not seeing an increase in response. Okay, there's a few more coming in. So a few seconds. Okay, polling is closed. Let's see if it's going to give us our results. 
Okay? So, we had a slow... What did we have in our case? Yeah? The symptoms developed slowly, so we would rule out vascular. Yeah? Toxic metabolic, did we have any mention of anything else happening to the patient? If it was toxic metabolic, would we expect to maybe see some more symptoms rather than centrally in one place? We would, so we can rule out that answer choice. What other answer choices did, were we left with? Neurodegenerative, neoplastic, let me just refer to my thing. Okay, and genetic. Why, why could we rule out genetic? The age. So quite an elderly gentleman. So we know, of course, there are some genetic disorders that do uh, show up in later age. But, I mean, he was already 60 years old. So we expect to see those earlier. So based on that, we can hopefully you guys narrowed it down between our neuroplastic, neoplastic, and neurodegenerative. So to decide which one was correct, what would you do? You'd do some imaging. Just to confirm, yeah? And so if you did your imaging, hopefully you would, have, you would go for neoplastic, and this was a case of a vestibular schwannoma. So that's it. Thank you.